I don't usually get overwhelmed in public, but here I am. Uh, it's just great to be able to introduce him to you. Um, I've known Bante for over 30 years, and in that time, um, I'm not usually like this. <laughs> it's very, very unusual for me. Um, in that time, he has given me so much. Uh, I think years ago, a few years ago, if I was going to introduce Bante, I think I would have talked about his wisdom, his tremendous clarity, and how much I've gained from that, and how he's taught me to think for myself, read Buddhist texts and think it through for myself, and learn so much that way. Definitely Bante taught me how to think for myself. But uh, more recently, I think I would say the, the quality that really stands out for me is Bante's kindness and his patience. Um, I haven't always been the best disciple of Bante, uh, especially about maybe about 10 years ago, I was rather a difficult disciple, I would say. And Bante was always, always patient with me and kind, uh, quite remarkably so. Um, just one other thing I'd like to say about him is, is his humour, which I'd kind of forgotten about until this afternoon when I was, about four o'clock this afternoon, I was taping white tape onto some steps that lead up to the room that Bant is staying in, just so that he could see them if he got up at night and walked down the steps. I was just taping white tape on. Banty came up the stairs and he caught, he saw me there and he said, doing penance? She's. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I'm sure this wasn't in his mind, but uh, I felt that actually I should have been doing penance for <laughs> some of the, the ways I've treated Banty in the last 10 years. So um, I don't know what Banty's going to talk about this evening. Um, I haven't asked him, and he hasn't given me a title. I'm just really looking forward to it. So I'm just going to hand you over to Banty Sangrachta. <clears throat> Thank you, Ratnaguna, for those uh, kind words. I, I, I must say my sense of humour has sometimes got me into trouble, hmm? <laughs> but we won't go into that this evening. Um, yes, it did take me quite a long time to to decide what I was going to talk about this evening. And in any case, I thought I'd better not talk for too long, as nowadays, age having crept on, I seem to get uh, tired rather more quickly than I used to do. And talking and giving lectures is, or can be, quite a tiring business, using up as it does quite um, a lot of energy. So I may not be speaking this evening uh, for quite so long as I was accustomed to doing, um, even a few years ago. But I must begin by saying that I'm very happy to be here at the Manchester Buddhist uh, Centre again. I've uh, visited this centre quite a number of times in the past, and uh, I'm very happy to be here again and to see some of the, the changes uh, that have taken place. I'm very pleased to see that there's now a lift. <laughs> um, otherwise, I might not have been able to be here at all. 
uh, years ago, I remember when I stayed at the men's community sometimes, toiling up all those flights of stairs, iron stairs, flight after flight. So yes, you really did need that, that lift, especially if I was to come here. But enough of that. Um, the weekend before last, uh, we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Western Buddhist order. We celebrated it at Wyndham College over a longish weekend and uh, I attended some part of those uh, celebrations. And I remember on the Saturday evening I had dinner with eight very senior order members. I think they'd all been ordained for 30 or more years. And it was a very interesting experience after the meal was over, just sitting there together and reminiscing. And one person saying, do you remember this? And somebody else saying, well, do you remember that? And there followed some story of the very early days, which gave us a great deal of amusement. And uh, people were reminiscing about the first time they set eyes on this person or, or that. Uh, first time they saw me. And I was remembering the first time that I set eyes on some of, of them. And I remember in particular, I re recounted uh, the story of the first time I set eyes on Vajradhaka, who was one of the eight present. And uh, I described how it was on the occasion of a jumble sale in Camden Town. In those days, we, we raised money, partly, by having a jumble sale every now and then. And we were quite pleased when we managed to raise, oh, two or three hundred pounds. That was quite a lot of money for us in those days. And I said, I, I remember arriving for the jumble sale, which was in a hall in Camden Town, and there were the stalls. And behind one of the stalls, there was a very tall young man. He was only about 18, and he was wearing a beautiful white silk suit. And he had long black hair and very flashing black eyes, which were turning in all directions. Uh, one of the eight who was also present on that occasion said he remembers that Vajradhaka also had golden boots. I, I said, I didn't remember the golden boots, but I certainly remembered uh, that, um, that white silk suit and the long black hair and the flashing eyes. And even after th more than 30 years, I can still see them in my mind's eye. So in this way, on that occasion, we were all reminiscing and... Uh, recalling our memories of, of one another and of the things that were, were happening in those early days. 
and uh, people were all remarking, remarking on the, the number of activities we already had, that there were so many retreats, including weekend retreats, so much meditation, there were communication exercises, there were, were, there were lectures, all sorts of things were happening. There were, there were classes um, and public lectures. And so in this way, in the course of half an hour or so, we were all reminiscing and recalling those very early days of the movement. And several people were saying that they remember those days not only as very busy days, very full days with lots of activities. Uh, quite a number of the, the, the people present were actually living in squats at that time. It was perfectly legal then, before that particular gap was closed. It was perfectly legal. So they used to live very cheaply, just get part-time work from time to time and spend the rest, the rest of the time engaged in FWBO activities. So they were recalling that it was not only a very busy time, but a very happy time, a very joyful time. And I think one or two even felt that maybe it was the happiest time of their whole life, the time when together we were creating the FWBO and uh, the WBO. Of course, a lot of this, the events were, were led by, by me. I used to give all the lectures, take all the classes, and uh, someone used to say that I also made the tea and cut the sandwiches. <laughs> I don't quite remember doing that, but it's not impossible. Hmm? Um, I really did keep very busy in all sorts of, of ways. Eh? So uh, I, f I found it a very interesting experience to be with these eight people that I'd known for more than, well, for 30 odd years in each and every case and uh, who had known one another for that length of time and who had come together on that occasion on the anniversary, the 40th anniversary of the founding of the Western Buddhist Order. So that's the sort of situation that um, the Order and the, the FWBO grew out of. Then we were only a few, few dozen perhaps, maybe 50 at the most. Now I'm told there are more than 1,500 order members. And there must be double and even treble that number of mitras worldwide. So we've grown since then. We've expanded. Experience has expanded. And in many ways, in many cases, experience of the Dharma and of communication with one another and of understanding and sympathy these have all deepened over the years in the case of so many people. So it was out of this, it was out of our happy association with one another, our friendship with one another, all those years ago, those decades ago, 
the, the Western Buddhist order and uh, the friends of the Western Buddhist order gradually emerged. And one might say, well, what was it that held us all together? Hmm? What was it that uh, united us? What was the, the common principle which we shared and on the basis of which we all cooperated, especially in the case of those who were order members? And of course the answer to this question is that the uniting factor was our common going for refuge to the, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. This was what united us. We came from many different backgrounds. There were several different lifestyles amongst us. Many were single but some also were married. So there were those differences. But overriding all those differences, there was the fact that we were all going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. And in, in later years, I formulated the, the slogan that commitment, going for refuge, is primary and lifestyle is secondary. And that is one of the, the basic principles, one of the distinctive features of the FWBO and the WBO. In many parts of the Buddhist world, um, Buddhists are divided into those who are monks and those who are lay people and who, in many cases, are expected simply to serve and look after the monks. But over the years, even when I was in India, I became convinced that this sort of division, especially when it was carried to extremes, was quite disastrous, both for the, the monks and for the lay people. And also, it lost sight of what was fundamental. It lost sight of what was common, that is to say, the going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. If we look into the, the Pali scriptures especially, we find that there were so many occasions on which the Buddha taught, taught the Dharma, whether the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or the Five Spiritual Faculties, whatever the Buddha taught. It very often made a very, very strong impression on the minds of those who were listening to him. And sometimes they were quite overwhelmed quite carried away and on many occasions they responded to the impression that the Buddha's words 
had made on them by saying to the Buddha we go for refuge to the Dhamma we go for refuge to the Sangha we go for refuge and some became monks some remained lay people but what they had in common all of them was the fact that they all went for refuge to the Buddha acknowledged the Buddha as their teacher went for refuge to the Dharma did their best to practice the teaching of the Buddha and went for refuge to the Sangha looked up to and received help from spiritual help from those fellow Buddhists fellow disciples who were more experienced than themselves so this is what I sometimes call the the first distinctive emphasis of the FWBO and the WBO that commitment is primary lifestyle is secondary so we do not see ourselves the, the WBO in particular does not see itself as a monastic order it does not see itself as an order of lay Buddhists it sees itself as an order of Buddhists all of whom go for refuge but among whom there is quite a variety of lifestyles some living perhaps in a somewhat more so to speak monastic way others living in a so to speak more lay kind of way but all united by the fact that they go for refuge so in this we are quite distinctive there's quite a lot of course that the FWBO and the WBO share with the rest of the Buddhist world but this is one of our distinctive features that we place going for refuge first and lifestyle very much in a secondary or even tertiary place now there's something also which distinguishes us and especially which distinguishes the Western Buddhist order and that is that we are open to both men and women on an equal basis um, members of the order uh, whether men or women have equal responsibilities equal position one might say if one wants to use that word equal <coughs> duties there is no difference made between them on the basis of gender and uh, that's rather unusual in the rest of the Buddhist world hmm? um, in some parts of the Buddhist world ordination of nuns has died out completely and in some other parts the nuns are very definitely uh, even when they're not uh, technically nuns are subordinated to the, the bhikkhus and there is no question of them being given so to speak equal status so when we say that uh, members of the western Buddhist order whether men or women have equal responsibility equal duties observing the same precepts living the same kind of life as order members 
within their respective lifestyles, where this is not only in some ways revolutionary, it's really quite quite radical. And um, within the FWBO, I think we're, we're so accustomed to this. We're so accustomed to seeing Dharmacharinis functioning in just the same way that Dharmacharis function, giving talks, leading classes, giving initiations, giving ordinations. Eh? We become so used to this. It's so much part of the the world, the Buddhist world in which we live, that we don't realize how, historically speaking, how radical it is. And it's sometimes very difficult for Buddhists outside the FWBO to, to see and to, to recognize the radical nature of, which, of what we are doing. And not only that, there are other, uh, there are other areas in which the FWBO and the WBO have their own distinctive emphasis. And one of the most important of these is the fact that we seek to derive inspiration and guidance from all the Buddhist scriptures. When I say all the Buddhist scriptures, I don't mean that to say that we literally do study all of them. There's quite a lot of them. Uh, if you look at the Chinese canon, for instance, you find, I believe, that there are 1,600 or separate works. And uh, even in the case of the Tibetan canon, well, I think we've got there some, what, 220 of these big, fat, uh, you know, xylograph volumes. And even the Pali canon, which is comparatively small, but in the Royal Thai edition, there, well, there are 30 volumes. So there's quite a lot of scriptures. So it's not that we, lit we literally expect people to study the whole extent, but we feel free to draw from this vast mass of canonical literature whatever it is that we find inspiring. And of course there are certain works that have established themselves within the FWBO as popular favourites, either because I've lectured on them or for certain other reasons. I think most of us will love and appreciate the Dhammapada, the Udana, the Sutanipata from the Pali Canon, and um, texts like the Lankavatara and the White Lotus Sutra from the Mahayana Sutras, and from later works, texts like the Bodhicharya Avatara of Shantideva, which I know is a great favourite with very many order members and mitras and friends. Some of the songs of Milarepa are very popular. We draw inspiration, we draw, we draw guidance, we draw faith from them also. So with this vast, rich treasury which we can draw upon, we don't have to confine ourselves to the scriptures, to the texts of any particular traditional school of Buddhism in the same way that we are not, we don't consider ourselves as belonging to any particular school, any particular Buddhist tradition, but consider ourselves simply as Buddhists. So there is this, this third distinctive emphasis that we draw from benefit from, derive inspiration from 
all these different, or from a selection of all these Buddhist scriptures and other works. But there's something else that I need to mention, something also which is very important, something to which we attach very great importance, as most of you, I'm sure, have already discovered. And that is the great importance that we attach in the FWBO to spiritual friendship, to Sangha. And I know that this is one of the features of the FWBO that many people come to find especially attractive. This emphasis on Sangha, this emphasis on spiritual friendship. I get many letters from people, I see many people still nowadays, and in telling the story of how they came in contact with the FWBO, sometimes coming to us after some experience of other forms of Buddhism, one of the things that so many people tell me, either in their letters or personally, is that the two things that drew them most, perhaps, to the FWBO and which they value most and continue to value most is, first of all, a clear presentation of the Dharma and the experience of Sangha. And that the fact that people appreciate so much this emphasis on spiritual friendship, this emphasis on Sangha, suggests that very often nowadays in the outside world that element is lacking. You may have friends, so to speak. You may have acquaintances, which you may not have in the outside world, people whom you know so well that you can open your heart to them, that you can have a full and deep communication with them on everything that concerns you, whether material, practical, emotional, spiritual, and so on. But this is what we find in the conception of spiritual friendship which we've developed within the FWBO. Some of you know that there is a text in which the Buddha has a little dialogue with Ananda, his faithful companion and disciple. Um, I'm recounting this little incident in the life of the Buddha, but I know many of you are well acquainted with it and have heard it many times, but I repeat it nonetheless. The Ananda, as sometimes he used to do, says to the, the Buddha, Lord, I think that spiritual friendship is a half of the holy life, the, the brahmacharya. And the Buddha says, no, don't say that, Ananda. Spiritual friendship is not a half of the spiritual life. It's the whole of it. Now, no Buddhist tradition that I'm aware of in the course of the last 2,500 years has ever taken that utterance of the Buddha seriously or asked, what did the Buddha mean by that? He taught so many things. 
Four Noble Truths, Noble Eightfold Path, Six Paramitas, Five Spiritual Faculties. Hmm? What did he mean when he said that spiritual friendship, Kalyana Mitrata, is the whole of the spiritual life? Is that teaching of the Buddha, that utterance of the Buddha, that in the FWBO we've tried to explore? We've tried to go into it deeply. We've tried to plunge into it. And many of us, maybe all of you, have tried in the course of our lives, in our dealings with other people, to exemplify this ideal of spiritual friendship and make it an integral part of our lives. So this is another of the distinctive emphases of the FWBO. I'm not saying that friendship is not found elsewhere in the Buddhist world. I'm sure it is found. But it is not given the importance and even the central place that we give it in the FWBO. And we try, as you know, actually to cultivate it. We see it as a, well, at the very least as an important aspect of the whole spiritual life. It's not easy to plumb the depths of what the Buddha meant when he said that spiritual friendship was the, the whole of the spiritual life. But at least we do try to do that. And then there are a few other distinctive emphases there is the, the emphasis on what we've come to call team-based right livelihood. I know that that's going a little out of fashion at the moment within the movement, and I'm rather sorry to see that. And I hope that sooner or later there will be a revival of team-based right livelihood. Uh, I believe it hasn't died out altogether here in Manchester at least. I believe your, your cafe is still run on that sort of basis. And in any case, there's also the, the broader issue of right livelihood. And this is something also that we've emphasized. Um, it's very important that whatever the way in which we choose to earn our living to support ourselves and our families we look at the ethical implications of what we're doing hmm? at the very least we have to do that but if we can work together as Buddhists supporting ourselves and our families if we have families by means of team-based right livelihood, with all that that Im implies uh, in the way of possibilities of developing spiritual friendship and creating dana for the movement, then that is so much the better. So I, I do hope that team-based right livelihood will revive within the movement. It's, not, it's by no means entirely dead, but certainly it's not quite so alive, I think, as it was, say, some 10 
of 15 years ago. So this is something that we have to try to, to revivify. And there's one more thing I'd like to, to mention, and uh, that is the arts. I've always seen the, the arts, whether the practice of art or the appreciation of art, as something that has an important place in the spiritual life. Beauty should have an important place in the spiritual life. The appreciation of beauty, whether in the form of art or in the form of natural beauty, has the capacity to develop our sensitivities, our emotional life, to refine our emotional life and in some ways, in some cases, open the way into the experience even of meditative states. Um, just quite, quite recently I was uh, listening to an audio book of um, selections from Wordsworth's poetry and uh, well, since I can no longer uh, read or write unfortunately I'm having to, to, to listen to audio books as well as to get friends to read to me uh, but in this particular case I got, uh, I got a cassette of selections from Wordsworth's poetry and one of the poems that was read was his lines written above Tintin Abbey. Now, this is a poem I've, I've read in the past a number of times. But just listening to it this time, um, read by a very good reader, hmm, uh, came as, a, in a way, a bit of a revelation it really did seem that in this poem, in a section of this poem, Wordsworth had given expression to a sort of state of meditative calm which opened even into what we may describe as, as vistas of, of insight. No technical language, no Buddhist language of course, not even any very abstract philosophical language but one, one couldn't help feeling or I couldn't help feeling that uh, in this in this, this, this poem uh, Wordsworth showed that he'd had himself an experience um, very close to what Buddhists experience um, when they become absorbed in, in meditation when they dwell in higher states of consciousness and when they try to look into the heart of things. So, from the arts, from poetry, from music, from drama, from dance, we can derive something that adds to, something that supports our spiritual life. And uh, this is again one of the emphases, one of the distinctive emphases um, of the FWBO and uh, the WBO. 
in all Buddhist countries, of course, art has been produced, literature, poetry has been produced, much of it inspired by Buddhism. So I think it is but natural that within our own movement, we not only appreciate the arts, but also, in the case of some of us, create them. And we're very fortunate to have within the movement some very creative people indeed. And of course in this connection I can't help uh, referring to, I can't help noticing the, the very beautiful Rupa that sits on the shrine here at the Manchester Buddhist Centre. As most of you know, that was the, the, the work of Chintamani one of our most gifted artists. And uh, it means a lot to me in particular because this rupa, this image, is based upon a vision which I had when I was staying at the Virupaksha cave in South India uh, during my period as a freelance wandering ascetic and I'm very glad that that vision of mine can be embodied and commemorated in this way I must mention that um, at the time that I had this vision and for a long time afterwards for many years afterwards um, I was under the impression that it was a rather unorthodox vision because I, I couldn't remember ever seeing a painting or an image of the Buddha or Amitabha holding up a red lotus. But there it was in this vision of mine, as I've described it in my memoirs. But just a few years ago, someone sent me a postcard of a, a tanka, a postcard which I think they'd bought in Nepal, and there it was the meditating Buddha holding up a red lotus flower. And shortly after that, someone told me that they had gone to Kanimpong and that they'd visited um, a temple which had been built there by one of my own teachers, Dujon Rinpoche, uh, after my own departure. And uh, they said, on one of the walls there was a painting of a red Buddha holding up a red lotus flower. So again I was really surprised and I thought, well, unbeknown to me, the Buddha of my vision did, some, did have some connection, some precedent within the Buddhist tradition. So as, as I said at the beginning of this little talk, I wasn't quite sure what I should be saying this evening but anyway um, the words have come and uh, I've outlined some of the distinctive emphases of the FWBO and the WBO we have a great deal in common with the rest of the Buddhist world but we also have our own distinctive emphases and it is perhaps 
these distinctive emphases which have appealed to many of the people who have come into contact with the FWBO and who have decided that they wanted to practice the Dharma within this particular context. I don't know if you've uh, heard of these distinctive emphases before or whether this is your first introduction to them. But uh, whichever it is, I hope that you've found this little talk of interest and I hope that sooner or later we may meet again. indeed Vante I've recovered now by the way so I'll be able to speak Um, what I should have said at the beginning if I was in my usual frame of mind was welcome to you all so I'd like to welcome you now very good to see so many of you here on the Sangha night don't often see that many people here on Sangha night but there was a rather special speaker here tonight I thought I would just very quickly um, tell you what the six distinctive emphases of the FWO were. I mean, Bantish has just done that, but he didn't round up, so I'll just quickly remind you in case you want to go away with a soundbite in your head. First is uh, going for refuge, neither monastic nor lay. Second is uh, open to men and women on an equal basis. Third is that we derive inspiration and guidance from all Buddhist scriptures, from all Buddhist traditions. Fourth is spiritual friendship and sangha. Uh, I I think I got this down verbatim. He said, no Buddhist tradition that I'm aware of in the last two and a half thousand years has taken that teaching seriously of spiritual friendship. Um, Team-based right livelihood and in a wider sense, right livelihood and the arts. And uh, Banti talked about that poem, Tintin Abbey. And I remember a few years ago, hmm, quite a few years ago now, um, on an order weekend, an order member led study for a few of us on that very poem, which um, is a really remarkable poem, isn't it, uh, from the spiritual point of view, from the Buddhist point of view. And as Banti says, no technical language in it, but it does speak about the importance of calm, tranquility, leading to wisdom and insight. Remarkable. Uh, so thank you very much, Banti. <laughs>